So, here we are with off-message podcast number four. This time round, I gatecrashed a former Celebrity House of the Year winner's Swish Dublin gaff to chew the media fat with its owner, Nora Casey, to find out more about her long and fascinating career that's crisscrossed the worlds of newspapers and magazines, television and radio, online and off. During our chat, she came clean on her nighttime secret affair with numerous podcasts. She worried about her addiction to news. She revealed what went on behind the scenes on her two most traumatic media outings to discuss first her second husband's death and then the domestic abuse she endured for nine years at the hands of her first husband. She discussed her love-hate relationship with social media and lots more. Enjoy. Nora Casey, thank you for inviting me into your home for Off Message. What is this? 46, but it's the fourth podcast. Uh, are you a podcast fan? Do you, have you done them? Do you- I, well, firstly, I'm addicted to This American Life, Radio Lab, Reply All. I cannot go to sleep. I, I lost the ability to read books after Richard dies, which is ridiculous. I, As you can see, you're in a room that's full of books. And my whole life was books that sometimes would devour two or three a week and then... I just couldn't concentrate. I'd start reading the sentence and I'd read the same sentence five or six times and could never get to the bottom of the page. And then I discovered This American Life and Serial actually was the first one, the first Serial. Mm -hmm. Um, Adnet. This is really testing my memory. You know your Adnet. So I got addicted to Sarah Koenig and of course... um, Ira Glass, I sleep to every night like that man's the most amazing voice on the planet. So you put on a podcast. To go asleep every night. And you fall asleep during the podcast. So last night I listened to three. I listened to one at three o'clock. I listened to one at five o'clock. So if I wake up, I tend to ruminate on things and imagine what I didn't say when I should have Mm. said. It plays (laughs) over my mind. And I can't quieten the voices myself. So I put my earphones in and I listen to Ira or I love Reply All actually. It's really good. So I just kind of, I usually fall asleep and then I'll wake up thinking there's somebody in the room with me and realise that it's actually in my ears. I should charge all those advertising (laughs) rates. What are are harmonious advertising rates? And I'll charge all those podcasts. Um, Speaking of podcasts, why don't you do your own podcast? And good good thought because obviously I've had the same one myself I did one so I have a, a digital learning platform for women called Planet Women mm, I have tons of videos um, I probably have 200 pieces of video up there of women that I've talked to about you got to the top another nine didn't how did you get there they're just little snippets from uh, tips and you know things from women and real stories like you know I don't really like stats you know so then I did one myself, which was about some of the science that I unearthed about the difference between women and men, which I always try and explain visually. We do it in an animation. Mm. We've done it in um, a video. And I thought, you know what, I'll do it with sound. And um, I'm not the best. Richard was a great editor. You know, he worked for the BBC and he used to edit stuff all the time. He did series after series mm. when he left the UK and he was kind of uh, working in RTE and he was still working for BBC um, he was doing all his own editing here and he was a fantastic editor. I mean, sound editing is just a beautiful skill when you get it right. And um, and I don't think I'm very good at it or else I feel I haven't probably invested enough time to mm. to learn it. Uh, yeah, it does take, yeah. Uh, yeah, it takes a bit of time. It, it also, the more you do it, the more you know yeah. what's flab exactly. and what can go. Sound is, so 
I do video all the time, mm. which is dead easy. I mean, I will go down to the kitchen. If you look at my table there, I have it set up. And in the morning time, I might do five minutes on gender pay issues or I might talk about, you know, women on board. Are these all or, one take or do you edit them? No, they're just one take. One take. And, and then I just use iMovie to chop and change a little bit in the middle okay. and put a bit of music behind it. Yeah. But they go up on LinkedIn or wherever else on my own yeah. site. Um, and I even sometimes, you know, if my brother's driving the car, I'll do a little thing, you know, eight ways to know that it's time to leave your boss. <laughs> I'll do my little video. <laughs> There's a song in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but people like, I think people having gone from an era where we tidied up all of the video and made it look really posh mm. and I remember doing the late late at the time when they did the first um, Facebook live and they had Ryan all dressed up and it all had beautiful and the set behind him and everything else and after about three or four weeks I said no that's not what people want so now he literally walks backstage and says hi to the woman in makeup and you know it, it looks like it's real and it's a bit of shake on the he camera. He gives the behind and, the scenes yeah. in, insight. And, and ironically it's much easier to do that with video than it is to do that with sound. So when I when I started diving into this American life, which like I'm such a massive fan of the fact that it's reality radio, you can hear the crunch of the gravel, mm. the doorbell ringing, the heavy breathing. It's the opposite to what you imagine radio should be. And in, in Richard's time, you got rid of the M's and the A's and you tidied it up and made it pristine mm. and for the BBC in particular. <laughs> and uh, and now what I love about listening to great podcasts is I feel like I'm almost in the room Okay. and you know that you can hear the intake of the breath and you can feel the person who's you know either talking in the background so we should have left the tumble dryer on in the yes, background yes exactly here. yeah I know it's <laughs> that shown we turned that off I was a real woman a you know yeah. <laughs> doing my drying um, so yeah I'm a massive sound fan so would you start one if you were to do a podcast what would you do it about I do think that women or young women in particular is a bit of a passion for me. And I and I've tried in so many different ways to try and influence or maybe let them feel that they could be confident. It's never confidence with women, it's conf confidence. And uh, and so sometimes that involves me doing speeches or doing events, you know, which mm -hmm. I do a lot of mm -hmm. or writing the book or doing the videos in the morning or doing the digital learning platform. But in reality, I think if I could create something which was a little beyond some of the current podcasts for women which tend to be a bit negative frankly like I don't really want to spend my life talking about the stats that are bad sure I'd rather talk about the things that we can do to try and help that's your next project mm. you didn't start in media you your, your first job was was a nurse mm -hmm. how, how, <laughs> how, how tell me about that how, how did you make the leap from nursing to to, to managing a media empire I loved nursing I did three years and I think I was really good at it actually because it's a great grounding like nobody else in, at a young age do you ever face those kind of things you know death and illness and all of the humanity that it exposes mm. you to but I found it very difficult and at the end of it I kind of knew it wasn't going to be for me forever and I was still just 23 um, I went to London to work for the Royal College of Nursing as a professional advisor and within a couple of years they polished me up you know I was only really sort of a ward nurse I didn't even know how to answer the phone properly <laughs> the first day they said there's your secretary and I looked at her and she looked at me and I said what am I supposed to ask you to do but because I was learning how to do public speaking they they had me trained within an inch of my life they videoed me constantly for two weeks to get rid of my Irishisms and airs and ahs and I had a habit of you know my leg used to go up and down when I was talking so they kept playing it back and playing it back and playing it back and um, that is the best thing to do yeah. if you're ever doing media of any description is to look or listen back to yeah. what you've done. I, it's excruciating, yeah. by the way. And they sent me to Peter White from Does He Take Sugar, BBC Radio 4. 
he taught me radio um, and I I was writing regularly for The Guardian and um, some of the other newspapers. It, it, you have to remember at the time the Royal College of Nursing was being run by a man, very unusual, General Secretary Trevor Clay, who since died. So he kind of lit on me when I arrived and said, well, you're going to be the public face of the organisation. So polishing me up was his life's work. He was a great mentor to me, by the way, but, you know, he also... You know, slavishly ensured that he could, you know, I would be wheeled out for anything on TV if it was Panorama, Newsnight, the BBC, ITV, that that I would be so polished that I could speak on anything. So at the end of two years, I was a very polished performer. And um, and he said to me at the end of two years, I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. There's no way I'm going back to nursing. Um, and I don't know what I'm equipped for. I'm like a walking mannequin. And he said, what you should do now is take a leap of faith and go off and do journalism and I went to Harlow to when, when are we talking about I was 25 mid 1980s 1986 87 and then I I did a, a postgraduate um, which was like um, a year-long indenture rather than three which you would have had to do otherwise but you still had to pass you know 100 words per minute t-line and local government and central government and law and then there was practical journalism which was um which I've always thought was a great skill. Like they'd bring in a, the chief inspector from Harlow and he would sit there and he knew something about a story. And all you'd be told is two people were found tied up this morning and in 15 minutes you had to get everything out of him mm. and he'd have things, secrets hidden away <laughs> in his armory and you'd have to do And then there was another one, it was called the running story. So, you know, in exam situations, you'd sit there and like a ticker tape would come in and it's a crash in the oh, M1 wow. and two people are involved and another truck was involved and a bicycle was found. And, and you're literally sitting there just typing, typing, typing as fast as you can to try and stay on top of the story as it's developing. Yeah, yeah. But it was, so it was, look, the best grounding in terms of journalism training, I see them coming out with masters now and they don't know how to do half of that so i never did shorthand i never did typing and typing is the one thing to this day i regret not learning how to type properly uh and i had an opportunity when, when i went back to college in in 83 to do communications out in dcu because the mainframe computer as it was then had a, a course that you could do uh and it was there. But, but now but, but I type all learn, the time. Yeah, but you, are you still typing with two fingers? Well, maybe. I, I, use, I don't know how many fingers I use, but never in the right order. <laughs> you, know? I, you know how I learned? I literally used to sit with the typewriter on my lap and I'd listen to the news and I would write. The whole time I'd look at the TV and I would be constantly be writing, writing, writing until I learned the finger movements of like so learning a guitar all, yeah every single night all wow. night every night until i was and now i'm you'll never meet a faster typer than me <laughs> i yeah. whiz across that keyboard it takes me forever to type up something well there's a handy hint yeah, now yeah, you can do yeah, that there you go when i finished doing print journalism i went to ealing college to do tv production and direction for two years and that was more because i was constantly in front of the cameras like as i say i was this walking mannequin in my 20s i was presenting for the bbc learning zone um and I was working for STV, Scottish Television, on a programme called Platform. So in addition to all sorts of the day jobs and everything else, I the mystique of the studio always bothered me. I would walk in there and I didn't know what that man was and what this person was uh, okay. and what the camera... And there's a lot of people in studio. And, and all yeah. I, the only reason I did that course at Ealing College, the two-year uh, course, um, was because I wanted to know that. I didn't ever want to work as a floor manager or a sound engineer or a lighting guy. Or, you know, I just wanted to know what everybody was. And it was really helped my confidence. So, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. because I could then walk in and I knew why he was doing that. And I understood more about everything that was going on in the yeah, yeah. booth. And um, You're in London, no longer working in nursing, uh, mm. media, presenting, mm. writing. 
uh, that's, I take it, where you met Richard. He was at the BBC. So you have to remember, in my 20s, without getting into it, I was married to another man. And that was not a very good relationship. And that happened really when I was just leaving nursing and going into mm. journalism. We so can t- we'll talk about that in, in, I'm in media skip terms. Over this, yeah, okay? yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll so talk about the media thing of that my, later. My day job, the one that funded my mm. salary, was I ended up going around full circle and becoming editor of a weekly nursing magazine ah, okay. called Nursing Standard. And then eventually, rose in that company, um, which is called Scutari, and five marks if you know what Scutari is it sounds Italian no okay I give up it's where Florence Nightingale occurred for the victims of the Crimea in Turkey so ah. so it was called Scutari we had a reception who called it Scuttery and <laughs> that, that's in the Crimea yeah it's in Turkey but it was from the Crimea war she cared for people in Scutari um, so you met Richard and- so then I you know I, I, I grew up that company I was very hungry to get on and obviously you know was before long editorial director. Before I was thirty, I was CEO of that business, and I and I had a joint. Publishing. I love the way you just said before thirty, I was I was the boss like that. Does but I but I I you know you forget that at the time you know I was I was working flat out all sorts of days nights studying, gaining qualifications. I mean, when everyone else mm. was having fantastic fun in their twenties, I was not. I was escaping a difficult personal life, so I was obviously working weekends at Sky. I had my own chat show on LBC um, when it was in Shoe Lane on Sunday afternoons and you know I I was a consummate devourer of knowledge and information and I and I know that I was very driven so you know I went into that company as you know news reporter six months later news editor six months later editor six months later editorial director before I knew it I was there sitting on the CEO seat so around about just to cut to the question you asked me there was a, a nurse at the time called Beverly Allett who had a syndrome called Munchausen's by proxy. And she she murdered uh, tons of babies. And uh, her trial had just concluded and she was convicted, obviously, of all of these murders. And um, I was in a studio in Northern England um, in, in the BBC in one booth. And at the other end of the booth was, was Richard Hannaford. And he was interviewing me about my perceptions of the Beverly Allett trial. And got into a big load of detail about Munchausen's by because every, you know when people discover a new syndrome yeah. everybody wants to know what is it and sure. you know how do so we finished the interview and that night I was going to a dinner a media dinner and this man was sitting next to me and it was twice in one day was yeah, like, yeah there you go <laughs> and, you know but it took about 20 minutes for me it was his voice is very distinctive so right. after a while you know I said pass the sugar or whatever and he stood and I said you're not Richard Hannaford he said I am I said we were in the same booth you know talking today but so, so yeah. you didn't see him when you were doing the interview. You just no. heard his voice. Mm. <laughs> if you heard Richard's voice, they used to call it warm chocolate. Oh, OK. And I still have all his recordings, obviously. But Richard had the most beautiful voice. I mean, in London, everybody that I knew used to say, I woke up to your husband this morning. He was a mainstay on the Today programme mm. on Radio 4. So, you know, I woke up to that beautiful Richard Hannaford voice this morning. Yeah. So you, um, let's leave Richard aside for a second. Your own media career mm-hmm. when did when did Har- I know Harmonia is a new so name up, but if there was yeah, an art there was, I was, I was working I found myself working in London for Smurfits so now called Smurfit Kappa yeah. Jefferson Smurfit Group at the time they had a company in London that produced the Irish Post and um, all things Irish a little re-raw influential Irish in Britain and um, and I went in there as editor actually 
But again, within six months, I was CEO. She's, I don't know what, you know, I, I, I kind of long for the passion of writing again, but mm. I always end up being the boss. Um, <laughs> over time, they asked me to run the two Dublin companies. And one was Smurfit Communications that was doing all the magazines. And the other was a company they'd set up called Ivenus, which had unbelievably 33, 34 people working for it. And the burn rate was very high. They'd sank four or five million. What did Ivenus do? Ivenus was a destination women's website at a time when that was all the rage. So. Oh, okay. Um, handbag.com had been launched in the UK unbelievably sold for about 34 million um, this was before the dot com burst in the early 2000s wasn't it exactly so yeah, just yeah, at the wrong time yeah, to be honest you yeah, know yeah. and uh, they'd invested a lot of money in it they had a lot of burn they would auctions every Friday everyone was very excited it was going to be the future the digital economy and everything does that have shades of what's happening now I don't know but anyway the excitement at the time was that it was all about um, destination websites and um, the so I, I inherited those two companies to run and I was commuting from London to Dublin um, not ideal to be honest because Dara was about 18 months when I started commuting and Richard because he worked at the BBC was always didn't know whether he would be at the 6 o'clock news or the 9 o'clock news so he couldn't pick up Dara from sure. nursery Yeah, yeah. so Dara came with me so we got a place he commuted he commuted he was a great commuter um, <laughs> we commuted for a year and a half so you know when you go through that period where you're constantly saying to people sure it's nothing it's four hours door to door but actually it's wrecking you you know yeah, but you're never yeah. going to admit that to anyone yeah. so something had to give and he gave Richard took a sabbatical from the BBC very difficult decision for us as a couple to be honest but I was earning more at the time we desperately needed the money we had a house um, that we'd bought just before Dara was born and um so he said, I'll take a sabbatical. And uh, he started working with RTE almost immediately just for the six months that he was here. And then after six months, um, he said, you know, I might just continue on working from here with BBC Science, wanted him to do a series. He did a series with Frank McDonald on transport here and mm. things about the health service and things. So, um, so we ended up um, kind of semi-settling not not really until I bought the business so when Smurfit was then bought by Madison Dearborn which is a Chicago-based investment company they were getting rid of non-core well let me tell you like the publishing was non-core 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 compared to paper and packaging and uh, I had the opportunity to do an MBO so I helped and management buyout and management buyout yeah, okay. I sold the London company to the examiner group um now owned by another man called Elgin Lone, the examiner group uh, put it into receivership, I think. It didn't work out for them anyway in the end. And um, and I bought the Dublin ones. So I merged them into two. And the Dublin uh, magazines were? The Tatler, Tatler, You, Food and Wine. There was, there was loads I closed. There was one called Living Space, Cookbook, uh, Your New Baby, Woman's Way. Um, Subsequently, I bought Food and Wine in Auto Ireland and, and an American one called Ireland of the Welcome. Did you close Women's Way? No, I didn't. No, you did, yeah, sorry, I beautiful Women's Way, love of my life. The first, <coughs> the, I got the cover of Women's Way. Uh, they the were, first issue? No, God, no, no. They were the first people <laughs> to. Very young. They were the first. <laughs> they were the first people to publicise that I was leaving head to toe in '94. Really? Yeah, I got the cover of Women's Way. I remember that. Still you were on the cover. I was on the cover. Get out Women's of here! Way. Swear to God. That's a rare thing, is it, for a guy to be on the cover of Women's yes. Way? 1994. Yeah. Still have it somewhere. That's as good as me being the man of the month. There you go. Get us. We're comfortable <laughs> in our, swap in our, our We're comfortable in our gender fluidity. <laughs> the um 
What am I talking about now? You're talking about what? All right, so you you came where home. You, where were you? God, that's true. I don't know. Let's. Do oh, it. I bought the the London ones. Oh, the Dublin ones. No, you ones, sold yeah. the London. You bought in two thousand and four. Uh, yeah. Okay, and Randall is that when they became harmonious? That where yes. the name came. Where, do, you, do you know? Do, I don't know where to. Uh, she's full of questions. I don't. Okay, know. here's a hint. I had a website called I Venus. Venus. Yeah. Okay. Venus. Harmonia was the daughter of Venus and Mars, so she was the illicit daughter of Venus and Mars. In other words, she was harmonious. I think for the first three months, everything was written to harmonica. Yeah, so my cash flow was up the creek. <laughs> and then all these wags started, you know, slagging me, saying it was hormonia. Now, not WH, by yeah, the yeah. way. No, I'm no, no. Hormones. hormones. Yeah, yeah. How do you make a so, hormone? Yeah, yeah, I was, but I still like the name. I think it's just very inoffensive, you know? It's oh, just yeah. a nice name. Yeah, yeah. 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 You ran Harmonia for how long before you sold it when? Couple of years. First of December. Just, just here. gone. Yeah. To the same crowd in the States behind Irish Central. Exactly. Which is interesting because you initially got involvement with Irish Post. And Irish Central, yeah. actually, because oh, Smurfit's they? owned half of Irish oh, really? Central. Yeah. So when I was circle. doing the MBO, um, that half was sold back to Neil O'Dowd and uh, the Irish Post went to the examiner and I bought the Dublin one. So, yeah, full circle in a way. And also, um, my life with Harmonia, um, eventually Richard decided to come into the business with me which was a big thing for him he'd been working in broadcasting all his life he'd never worked in publishing but as time went on like somebody'd go on maternity leave and didn't come back and I'd say Richard you come in for a few months gradually he started to work in contract publishing you know with other people's magazines mm. and then he, when we started Tatler Man he loved that and so he was being sucked in you you stood back from the company when after Richard died so I think the year before if you remember the worst time in business was 2007 around about then everything sort of well. fell apart yeah, right? yeah. Um, that was the year I decided I would buy the premises that the business would be based in God there was bad timing um, it was it, it, bad timing for everything the contract publishing world fell apart at the time I was doing the K-Clubs magazine Dundrum yeah. Super Value you know Arnott's you name it I was doing their magazine and, and it all fell off a cliff literally within two months yeah. we had to let about 13 people go which nearly killed me mm. um, they were fantastic people great staff the whole unit there was just no work I think we still had a bit of Dun Stores HSE maybe on post but increasingly all they were saying was cheaper 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 mm. so there was no margin um, and we decided that enough's enough what are we doing sitting here in this tiny island with four and a half million people when we're sitting next to an English speaking neighbour let's go and find magazines for the we knew the UK far better than Ireland by the way because I'd been there 20 years and and it came about by and large because there was a magazine in London for sale called Delicious which was a food magazine it is a food magazine but it's in a, a licence from Australia and the, the company that was selling it um, phoned me and asked me did I want to bid for it and I'd been looking for things to buy in the UK so of course I wanted to bid for it in the end um, a colleague of mine that I worked with in London wanted to buy it and he was the CEO at the time so I backed off and then I said why am I buying a license from Australia I could go to Australia and get some myself because all of the licenses for magazines that were sitting on our shelves and in the UK are mainly North American licenses or German so actually we don't take an awful lot Delicious is the only Australian magazine that was licensed in the northern hemisphere so basically it's like selling a TV format it's Exactly you just the produce same. an yeah. Irish so when you see a, a Cosmo and you know all okay. of those, all right. you know, and you pay a license fee for that. 
plus the cost of production. And you also get the technical template. Yeah. And, you know, the good news is the advertising agency knows that magazine and in gotcha. your market, it's uh, kind yeah. of, you know, yeah, yeah. but exactly like a format. Yeah, yeah. So, so we said, listen, let's give the business a break from both our salaries. We commissioned a report to look at how much of our own magazines we'd have to change in order to put them on the shelves over there. So Woman's Way, for instance, looks exactly like Woman, Woman's Own. Maybe 30% of the content had to change that was local to mm. Ireland, but most of it's about the soaps and EastEnders and, mm. you know, they're all the same regardless as to which market. Irish Tatler, always a difficulty because Irish Tatler, I own the brand and the copyright and it predates Condé Nast Tatler. It's 1890. Started here by the English gentry. So, you know, it, it actually predates Condé Nast Tatler, which nobody ever understands. Um, it's a very old title, but but part of my license agreement is the word Irish has to appear before Tatler. And any time I've done things in the UK, it's really irked the Condé Nast crowd. You magazine, very like Grazia, probably mm. it, it, of all of them, needed only 10% content change. It's mostly Hollywood gossip and right. celebrities. So, you know, let's let's face it, all of our high street here is UK. Yeah. So when we're talking about River Island, you know, yeah, yeah. any yeah, of yeah. the looks we're talking about, they're almost all the same as yeah. you used to find in Oxford Street. Yeah, so yeah. so we did this exercise, which was great in terms of the outcome was fantastic in terms of how much change we'd have to make. We'd be producing in Ireland, so creating more employment in Ireland, moving it into the UK rather than being based over there. And we headed off for four months ourselves with Dara. Dara was about 11 at the time, so we just upsticked went off to um, Australia for six weeks, New Zealand. We met with, I'd say, over 100 publishers. Went to China. The the Tatlers in China are all owned by a Swiss company called Eddie Press. So made great relationships there. In fact, you know, for years afterwards, had a great relationship, particularly with Shanghai and Hong Kong Tatler. Um, we went to Bangkok to meet all of the publishers there, Singapore. Um, so we did a huge raft of meetings probably got 15 licenses a lot of them food interiors which we weren't very strong on is 15 a good um, batting average from all the people you met i would only have expected three from the 15 so we we got it down to 15 and then the reality was there would really only be three that we would focus our energies okay. on so we came back to ireland and set up within the company everybody was split into work focus groups and we put batches of magazines in and we looked at the applicability and what we'd need and what wow. we wouldn't need and okay, how it should yeah, work yeah. So a huge amount of work. It's very exciting. I think it was the most exciting time for me in publishing that because you, you go into New Zealand and um, New Zealand is one of the largest concentration of magazines per capita in the world. How come? Don't know why. Oh, I mean, okay. it's the same um, population as here and it sits much further away from its English speaking neighbour, which is only 20 million in Australia. Um, and the whole of the publishing community there would be belly laughs. Hang on a second. You spend your whole time making your magazines as Irish as possible to sell in Ireland. We spend our whole time trying to make ours as Australian as possible to sell in Australia. They would just laugh their yeah, socks yeah, off yeah. and say, and you're like an hour away from your English speaking yeah, neighbour. What are you doing? Yeah, yeah. But whether it's the mentality in Ireland that we felt we were deluged by the British magazines mm. and therefore ours needed to be very Irish yeah, to survive. Yeah. It was like Irish magazine plastered all over it. Yeah. By Irish. Yeah. And then suddenly these New Zealanders are saying, are you crazy? Like, what are you doing? Like, there's 60 million people right next door to you. So it was a real moment for me. And um, we came back with this hugely exciting period where the energy in the business was really high. We had all sorts of plans and thoughts and we'd gone into Enterprise Ireland. We had a very ambitious program of employment. And and then he got sick. So, so this was post the recession. We can mark this. So, so we can back 
um, in 2010. Right. And things were looking up. Everything was looking up and we were also so excited about the idea that we were going and we trialled two or three of our magazines in London in WH Smith's and Waitrose and the sales were magnificent. They were fantastic. Cost a lot of money, by the way, but they were magnificent. And I knew news trade over there very well because of the Irish Post. And, you know, I obviously knew all the distributors Mm -hmm. and I knew how it worked and how the subscription model worked and everything. So um, the following April, we probably came back in about May, June. And the following April, um, May, on his birthday, actually, Richard was diagnosed with cancer and he died in October of that year. But but the roller coaster of the year meant I was completely out of the company. Obviously, Richard was completely out of the company um, instead of the company just in, in business terms. I won't go into the personal horror of everything, but in business terms, all this excitement, all this energy, all this work that we put in was really completely put on hold. And then after a few months of that, I said, um, I need a bit of time out. So I did Dragon's Den that year, which was very okay. hard to do. I don't yeah, know how yeah. I did it, but I, I I don't know. You just do these things sometimes. Did and they then, approach you or did you approach? Well, no, I was doing it, you see. I was, it was the third season, ah, out, okay. you know. All right, okay. Um, and I did it. And um, TV3 called me up. And I, I guess since I'd come back... Um, I'd always been on the sofa or been interviewed about various things. Yeah. So you had a very public presence, a <laughs> yeah, media presence. Yeah, yeah. just in yeah, yeah. relation to what I was doing and everything. Mm-hmm. And then so they, they called me and said, Vincent Brown's going on holiday. We're trying out a few people. Do you want to sit in the interview chair? Wow. Um, for news, for, is it tonight? But, uh, t- tonight with Vincent Brown. Tonight, yeah, yeah, tonight, yeah. 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 So I was sitting there half mad with, you know, climbing the walls basically with both grief and loneliness and misery and I said of course I'll do it I'd be delighted to do it so it was somehow Tuesday or something the following week and um, of course in my 20s I'd been in the interview chair and I'd done autocue and I'd you know sat with the earpiece in and done all of that but but most of my life since then has been sitting like the the way I am with you Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I still remember driving up that night like I just on was coming up from Enniscary pulled up outside of TV3 it's like a moment of looking at the branding above and thinking what the am I doing like this is crazy it was about two o'clock I remember Pat Rabbit was on the program whoever was um, it was it was all about the fiscal treaty like it wasn't even something nice you know Mm. as in so I arrive in and the producer who subsequently worked with me on News Talk and she said, how are you doing? Nora? I said, I'm great. Thank you so much. Thank you. She said, we're all in here in the boardroom. I've left a big stack of reports for me. And I went to the toilet and threw up and I came back and she said, are you OK? And I said, no, I'm fine, fine. And you know, when you read things over and over, I'd read these reports. Nothing was going into my head. Yeah. Like it was like no synapse and back into the toilet. I threw up all afternoon. Yeah. And then it's sort of quick as a flash it's the time to go into the studio and I'm sitting there with the biggest rash going up my chest into my neck and you know the very extreme version of nerves when your mouth is completely dry and your lips are stuck to your teeth and your heart is hammering and the sweat patches are appearing and in my ear all I can say was five minutes five minutes and yeah yeah great and the autocue is a bit of a blur in front of me and I don't really know what happened but after the you know, the music and the introductions happened. I don't know, maybe it's an animalistic thing or a throwback. I got into my comfort zone, read read the autocue perfectly, threw the questions. Obviously, I, I knew far more than I expected that I knew. Mm-hmm. Had the most robust, exciting debate with the panel. 
and it just before I knew it they were saying that's it 15 seconds wrap and we finished and I remember calling my mother like it's in Ballymount and I was always a bit nervous driving on my own late at night very late at night <clears throat> what my mother who's in her 80s could do if it's in the Phoenix Park is beyond me but I used to call her anyway <laughs> 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 and uh, and she'd been used to me monosyllabic and you know not discussing or talking about anything and then she's this you know rabid daughter going oh my goodness you should have heard what he said and then she said and then I turned around and then I and she's going my god you're just so alive and it was just this moment of realizing that even though my personal life was in disarray and I had all that good that I could get energy from work mm. from doing the kind yeah, of work yeah. that might be okay. relying on more on me yeah. on my own two feet rather yeah. than in in a business boss way and I went back the next night thoroughly enjoyed it and then News Talk heard me doing it and no said, throwing up anymore. Loved every second. Yeah. News Talk said, Do you want to throw your hat in the ring for Ivan Yates' replacement? They were on there, they'd already trialed 50,000 people, and they said, Do you want to do it? And I did a trial the following week, and they said, oh, You've got the gig, do you want to do it? And I said, Yeah, of course I want to do it. So you'll be getting up at 4 a.m. for the next year. I said, Yeah, I'm your woman. And then out of the blue, RTE called me. It was all in this like three week period. And they said, oh, we're starting a new programme called The Today Show down in Cork, RTE Cork. Would you be free to be considered as one of the presenters? And I said, well, I don't think I can go to Cork Monday to Friday. I've just agreed to do news talk. And um, so we really want you. Would you do the trial? I did the trial. And then they said, OK, well, if we can't make it work Monday to Friday, what about doing Friday? We think we'll do a different format on a Friday, a bit of loose women sort all of right. thing. Yeah, yeah. And I said, yeah, I'll do Friday, you know. And don't forget, I'd given a commitment to another show after Dragon's Down, which was called The Takeover, which I did 13 episodes of. Remember The Takeover, and that's yeah. where you went into businesses and mm. got rid of the boss and let, and let the, and, yeah. the workers yeah. run the show for a while. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Um, so the comedians were saying there's loads of jobs in Ireland, it's just that Nora Casey has them all. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I put my, you know, I asked my finance director and marketing director to take over the business. I said, you know, formally. I'm taking a year out. I'm just doing this crazy mm. stuff for a year. So um, really absented myself a hundred percent, not even delving into it. I mean, 100%. so you left Harmony. It was like my own takeover. Yeah. You kind of just passed the book of Harmony. While Didn't, you... It was no interest in it. Yeah. So I went into this mad period where I got up at four o'clock. Um, I loved radio. News talk is a very long show. I mean, it's seven till ten. Every night at six o'clock, we have a news conference to decide the news the next day. So really your day is bracketed by six o'clock news conference. You get your briefs, you're reading your briefs all night, trying to get into bed at half nine. Although Dara spent his whole time trying to keep me up and um, up at four, back in, all the things that changed, rereading your briefs, redoing your, doing pre-records into the studio, seven to 10, thrown off. And then I was almost always filming um, with the, um, the takeover so I would leave then and go to Dundalk or over to Galway or down to Nace and I would film for two or three days and then on a Friday I convinced a friend of mine um, had a taxi and it was off the road and he was studying and I said well how about you drive my car and instead of RT paying for the train fare and the overnight fare they'll give you the fee so we agreed that would be a great idea so at 10 o'clock he was always outside news talk on a Friday I had a duvet and pillows in the back seat wow and I used to bed down and fall asleep for the whole journey. And I'd wake up with, when I tell you, my hair standing in one direction and they have poor hair makeup, makeup artists would be there Kenny saying, Cork. would you like more lashes, Nora? I'd say, I'd love more lashes. Give me more lashes. <laughs> I spent the whole morning talking to wow. politicians. And here am I now about to discuss Fair City and, you know. So did you take your foot off the accelerator or did you crash? I didn't crash. I um, 
I got to probably the following summer. So I started in around uh, August. So all of the Vincent Brown stuff was July. So August, September. What started. year are we talking? This is... 2013. 13, okay. Um, and I... <clears throat> the Cork thing was really good fun. Like I'd, that was my best laugh actually coming back. Blonnet Need Coffee was on mm-hmm. with me and uh, she would go down on the Thursday. Did most of the heavy lifting and... Then, because my guy would drive us back up Friday night, we'd stop at the services station outside of Cork and buy a bottle of wine and two plastic cups. And I was... Classy goyles. Ferociously dieting. And we were allowed carbs. So whatever your poison was, which could be a packet of potato or it could be popcorn or something. And we would... That poor driver, like, it's what he heard in the front of that car is nobody's business. So we'd kind of roll up at half nine outside the house. Um... And ready for bed, definitely for mm-hmm. me. But it was, it, you know what? It was fantastic because the energy I got from all that work. If I was sitting around looking at the wall, yeah, I would have, I wouldn't have really been able to cope with the grief that I felt. And it gave me such a gift that I was, my head was constantly full of stuff. I'd always got things to talk about, and nobody could stop and start talking about Richard and get me maudlin because I'd be so busy telling them, you know, I knew so much about nothing, you know, everything yeah, I yeah, had knew yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I interviewed somebody about that, like there was almost the most boring encyclopedia the on the planet. Surface knowledge of yeah, everything, yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. no depth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah. I think um, it was coming towards the end of the summer the following year, and I was um, seriously trying to reassess my life a little bit and chatted to News Talk and said, "You've got Ivan coming back anyway in a couple of months. So what if?" I take I, I want to take a couple of months off and I agreed I'd do a Sunday show for them and I gave up the takeover I'd done my 13 episodes and I told Cork that I wasn't going to do the next season and and I just put a pause on my life and said I need to now I've done all those I know what I want to do and what I don't want to do and from that lovely pause I ended up doing virtually the guts of a year working with young traveler women um called the academy and um to, to this day very very close to two of them and you made a TV series yeah this was a TV series no it was a series yeah, yeah. with the with the so so I think what I realised after earning my media miles again as yeah. in I don't want to do daily radio it's a killer you can do nothing else um, even the weekly discipline took Saturday and Sundays I mean you know it, to be honest I love news talk but you do end up being quite hands on for everything yeah, so you know you're cutting and editing and producing yeah, and doing your own yeah, but yeah. I brilliant producers working with me but there just wasn't enough of us to be honest and um, I also realised I didn't obviously I didn't want to do Dragon's Den anymore um, it was a bit immoral to be taking people's um, businesses and not having the wherewithal to help them and so what I really wanted to do was more in that academy space working with um, maybe people that I always feel if you can't get a job you can start your own business and now I'm in the great position of being able to pick and choose what I want to do myself um, That's a very enviable position Yeah and I think you know I sold the business which was a big cataclysmic thing to do I Was it an easy decision to make? No it was the hardest decision ever I think although I was absent when I came off the back of all of that crazy two years um I asked my brother to go in and run it as CEO is great we're very close and and I became more involved in all the bits of the business that I loved doing as in you know I was the chairwoman but I also worked with the editors and still it's been lean for the last few years as Mm -hmm. you know with the digital revolution and everything so um but to be honest if you're not all in those businesses just don't work and and I think the weird thing was talking about domestic violence it just set off a train in my mind which was that was something that you always should have done and maybe if Richard hadn't died I would have done it sooner I I spend my whole life telling people 
you know, give testimony. If you know how you got to be where you are, help young people. Your legacy shouldn't be bricks and mortar. It should be how you helped humanity. And, and in a way, the marriage equality campaign taught us that brave people standing up and saying, this is me. And I think issues around my parents' generation with alcoholism and mm. you know sexual abuse and there were all things, mental health issues that were hidden under the table and now brave people come out and talk about depression and talk about alcoholism and addiction issues. So I felt a total fraud myself that nine years of my life were spent with somebody who had abused me and I'd never spoken about it. In fact, the opposite, I'd hidden it under the biggest you know carpet on the planet. And we mentioned that early on and now is possibly the right time to talk about not... The story you told, because you've told the story yeah. on on very publicly on, on The Late Late. But from an off-message point of view, from a media point of view, I suppose what, what I'm curious about is um, when you decided you wanted to tell that story. And also, you know, uh, after Richard died, you had a period where you didn't talk about it. Yeah. So there are two hugely traumatic events that you went public on on the Irish media what made you choose the media outlets that you did to tell those stories and and why the first one was a mistake um as in I didn't expect to talk about Richard I was seven six seven months after he died and Marion Finucane asked me to go on the program profile piece you know so I guess I should have known that it was ostensibly growing up in the Phoenix Park, you know. Was that a bit naive that you didn't think she'd well, want to talk about Richard? Maybe, or maybe I just blotted it out, yeah. or maybe I just thought I could just make it as an aside. Um, Marion knew Richard, and um, in the second part, we finally get to the point where she said, you know, and your lovely Richard died, and that must have been really hard for you. And and because I'd never done it before, and you know, when somebody belongs to you, dies, or a cataclysmic event happens, when you tell it, you can't compartmentalize it. So for me, when I started to tell it, I was right back in the room when he died and I was right back in the moment of the, and, I, and I'd and i avoided, you know, when people say, sorry for your troubles, you quick as a flash, you're back with you, that's grand, no problem, and move on. So mm. here I am on radio and I'm right back in that room and I lost myself, you know, as in, I started trying to talk about it and I actually got very upset and she knew I was very upset and she said, look, let's throw it an ad break. And I said, I can't continue. Like I was really upset and, you know, I had spoken quite a bit about it and um, and I left feeling dreadful. I was, you know, my, I really just was destroyed, went out to the car and by now full blown bawling and talking to my mother saying, and she's going, no, 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 you were good. You were good. Don't, don't worry about it. And the producer she knocked on the window and she said look you know firstly apologies if that came at you sideways but also the phone lines have just lit up with people and it was that kind of and then I noticed on my own social media those mm. people and it was like getting a virtual hug from yeah. a load of people and yeah. and it was a moment for me of saying I let go of something there which at the time I thought was my dignity but maybe it was also letting people know you're vulnerable and I gained something, which was this little, little tiny little nugget of, wow, loads of other people have been through this and they all know. And I'm not alone and I didn't destroy myself hugely there. So a little while after that, they asked me to go on the late late to talk about it. And you, you knew this time going on the late late that you were there to talk about Richard. Yeah. And it was my third 
broadcast. So it was one of those days when I'd started on News Talk at like four and I'd gone down to Cork and um, and then we were driving up straight to mm. RTE. I hadn't eaten all day. I was on a ferociously big diet, but I was also sick to my stomach with nerves and yeah. I hadn't slept at all the night before, imagining the questions and what I was going to answer mm. and how I was going to answer it. Um, we came back up in the car and uh, Blonid was trying to help me, but my head was just mush. Like, and when I got into the studio, um, I I didn't feel good, you know. My head was light and I didn't feel that great. And I know that when I went, there was the stairs at the time. It wasn't the little walkway. It's the stairs yeah. down. My legs nearly went from under me. They were completely jelly. I mean, just oh, at that yeah, second yeah. of walking from the top of the stairs, my legs just went completely like they were kind of just gone. Oh, I, I really thought I'd collapse. And Ryan came straight over to the well, bottom okay. of the stairs and held me. Uh. And and I was shaking like a leaf. And mm. he, he kind of walked me back to the couch and he he eyeballed me, right? which he said afterwards, which has always stood to me like he just eyeballed me the whole time. He wouldn't let me look anywhere except at him. So the first question I know I was very shaky I was I was shaking a lot while I was trying to answer and then I relaxed into it now not hugely as in there was a big chunk of time where my throat was engulfed with a big lump and I was trying very hard to speak without being upset and just but people would have known watching that yeah. you were going through that yeah it was a big ordeal but I when I and it there was it had been a few months since marrying Fanukin because yeah. um, I did marry him before I even started on news talk and everything and um, but again, I walked out of there and I felt that it was a it was a really hard thing to do. Like I was destroyed afterwards. And similarly, it took me two or three hours to, you know, kind of even be able to face the drive home. And um, and then my whole life was lit up with people like I'd walk down the street and somebody give me a hug and say it happened to me and my husband and my mom and my dad. And, you know. Although you do feel like you're in this collective grief, you also know that you've just talked about something that people don't often talk about. Mm -hmm. And the Hospice Foundation reached out to me and said, how would you feel about, you know, being an ambassador for this area? I said, absolutely, I'd love to. And they worked with RTE for me to do a programme called Death with Dignity, which was a privilege. I, I ended up talking to a lot of people who were facing the final months of their life and all of whom have died, actually. The last woman died last year. And it was really lovely to do an hour's programming mean, tough gig by the way on a Thursday night to convince people to watch something about yeah, death yeah, yeah. but I kind of knocked it from the get go as soon as the camera came to us and don't turn off don't turn yeah, off yeah. I know you want to turn yeah. off but for one hour of your life you know do something which which I think for Richard if he'd been more prepared uh, he, he wasn't really prepared he only ever talked once about what he wanted you know it's not something that you sit down and say can have a big chat about you know Yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah I, I think that Marion was the definitely and I wrote about her in the book um, she's definitely the spark that, that lit that fuse then you know grief became something that I you know I did a TED talk on and obviously I did the book and it just became a very important part of my story but but probably slightly overwhelmed me I went from businesswoman dragon to let's get the widow out and you know <laughs> no story was ever complete without me talking about Richard and I, I it just got to the point where I was thinking okay I've given that testimony so many times. I don't need to do it anymore. People know the story. And then it comes to domestic violence, which is not an easy thing to mm. talk about. Not easy when you've buried it for the whole of your life and pretended that it belonged to someone else that wasn't even you, by the way. Um, 
and I began to think about it last year, probably the year before last, sorry, the run up to last year. And it was niggling away in my mind as I was talking to people and, you know, conscious that I had this thing. And then once you think about talking in this space, it's like the whole universe is reminding you. So every day there was a story about domestic violence or you'd hear a woman talking about her sister who'd been killed. And, you know, it, it was a constant Pretty Little Liars was on. And, you know, there was a storyline in there. It was all about domestic violence. I think and that was me. I remember that. It was all sorts of shades of the universe throwing these things back at me. And I started writing. My default position is to write, not to publish, mm. but to get it out of my head. Almost like a diary? Yeah, just just the memories were coming back, mm. flooding back. They were buried in a box and a box and a box and a box and a big hole. So I was I was then starting to write every day about some of the things that had happened. And I thought, by writing about it, I'll get rid of it and it won't bother me anymore. But in fact, it just kept making it more to the surface. And what generally happens, as you probably know, is I get the call around about the start of the season from the Ray Darcy show and the Ryan Doherty show. And have you anything, would you put us in the hat, you know, especially if you haven't been on for a while, is there anything? Well, I have nothing going on, you know, but sure, can we have you on now at some point? And is there anything going on in your life that we can talk about? We'll, we'll stay in touch. I didn't have anything. I said, we'll stay in touch. So those kind of calls happened and the new year started in and I'm still obsessing about this idea that I want to talk about the so the late late called me then out of the blue and said you know we're thinking of having you on a panel and uh, John had just taken over you know or he was about to take over John McMahon yeah. as, as exec yeah. producer so the conversation was just about a panel or about something that they were going to do and and he said I said would you want to meet for coffee and when we met I said look I have an idea that I want to talk about something and I'm not sure that I do and I told him and he said, well, powerful stuff. Um, you know, the producer in me wants you to do it, but the human being wants you to be sure. Yeah. So it set off a train of constant calls and meetings. And and I was, you know, one minute saying I'm not doing it. And the next minute I am doing it. And yeah. like I don't, he recorded me once and I said, you can do that, but you have to delete it. As soon as I say you have to delete it. I wouldn't let him tell Ryan or any of the other researchers. I said, if you push me on, I'm not going to talk to anyone else about this. I want to be clear that. I really and don't forget I had to tell my brothers and you know my mum my sister knew but you know there was a suspicion in the wider family but I'd never talked about it. I had good friends who didn't even know I was married like I kept it such a big secret oh, wow. I never talked about my first husband I would have people did interviews with me you'll never find anything what did you do in your 20s I'll tell you all about the radio stuff and the yeah, yeah. I'll wriggle out of anything to, as far as most people were concerned Richard was the first love of my life but I wasn't really prepared myself to do it because I had this persona that people saw me as a tough businesswoman, mm-hmm. handy in negotiations. Mm-hmm. Um, I was worried people would see me as a doormat, actually. And, you know, there I thought Nora Casey was one person. And my goodness, she lived with somebody for nine years who did that sort of stuff to her. And, you know, I I just was obsessed about this idea that I would t- talk about something. I'd never be able to close the door again. When did you make your mind up to do it? Thursday before the Friday. Mm. And it was the that last was late show. last year, wasn't it? It was the very last yeah. show. So every week... It would be, are you doing it? Are you not doing it? No, no, no. And then, come on, Nora, it's the last show of the season. You're going to do it. So they would have had to have someone on they standby on just stand-by. in case. Yeah, they did. And on Monday, absolutely, I'm doing it. By Monday night, text. I can't do it. I just yeah. can't do it. And then, you know. When you walked on the set this time. Did for your, that one. Did your, did your knees go to jelly again? On this one, I was beyond terrified. Beyond more terrified. More than when you went on to talk about Richard? Yeah, more. Because that day was a total blur from four o'clock onwards. And I was tired. I was overwrought. I, um, this time, 
I knew what I was doing. I was terrified of doing it. I knew it would be a shock to the country. I I was conscious that all of my friends, everybody that I knew was going to hear me saying this. And apart from my family, you know, obviously knowing about it, I didn't have time to tell everyone. And it was and, and he built it up into this a business woman, you all know, she's going to come along. And it was and I and they put me in situ. I knew I couldn't walk on. So Ah, they so you came me. back after an ad break and you were sitting there. Yeah, they knew. I knew I couldn't walk on, okay. and um, and he settled me. And I think Ryan's very good at that. He mm. he settled me. We did the eye thing again. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, by and large, I thought I did it dreadfully, and all of the things in my head that I thought I was going to be very good at, and I was going to be this powerful woman giving this great testimony. I was actually quivering and mm. blubbering, and you know, not you know, I, I of course. It was like the grief thing, but but far worse, because at least, you know, when Richard died, I had obviously talked about it quite a lot and come to terms with it. And I'd, you know, I'd been constantly talking to people about it. I never talked to anybody about this, mm. like I never discussed it. I had hardly dared to even go back in my own head and describing some of those very physical moments, you know, when he broke my ribs and broke a bone in my face. It was very hard for me not to remember that happening to me. It was like impossible for me to disassociate from being in that moment when he grabbed a knife and it was just mm. all too real for me so as you were sitting there you were oh, reliving it yeah and and in like it, it's one thing to relive the moment when your your husband dies and you know all of us do that when our parents die and things mm. like that but but this was a really violent kind of a and it, it was also i kept thinking if I said something, I would then in my head say, how did that sound? Mm. It was the weirdest thing. It was like, you know, I was trying to tell about the first time when we weren't even married, by the way, and he slammed my head off the top of the car. And and I went on holiday with him the next day and Ryan's going, and what was going through your head? And I was like, oh, I was thinking, mm, how did he do that? Or why did he, what did I do to trigger that? But I was also worried about what makeup I might yeah, use yeah. to. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, and yeah. that's the truth. And I'm thinking, what kind of a stupid person were you? that you did that and I have to forgive my 20 you know two-year-old self that I that I did all of those things and that I behaved in that way but I also have to accept that it's a psychology of abuse that you think it's you and mm. you know you start blaming yourself and I triggered that and he's a great man and I'm the one and that's, that's the difference the between the Richard uh, yeah. interview and the abuse interview it was totally Ri different completely different yeah. because and 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 that's the whole thing about abuse but um what about the reaction afterwards, both in, in the media, social media and friends and family? So unlike the the grief one, which was an immediate, I, I, you know, I, I do remember going into the dressing room and putting my phone on. There's like hundreds. Of, yeah. This this is from the grief interview. And and I couldn't turn my phone on for two days after doing the domestic violence one. And I, I all Were I can describe, terrified, terrified. When I woke up on the Saturday, it was the biggest fear I've ever had in my life. If you imagine saying oh is that that wedding did I really say that to my aunt or you know did I do that in the pub last night <laughs> yeah I woke up thinking did you really go on national television and tell them this even though you had planned it for an age you wa had wanted to do it the reality of doing it freaked me mm. and I, I you know it was it was that kind of seriously did you really do that yeah. did you go on national television and tell this terrible horrible dirty secret of your life and you know, and also cry about it. And why weren't you this formidable woman that could just tell that story without? I I felt terrible about mm. it. And I it was the Sunday afternoon. I'd say before I could turn on the phone, and I had to have a friend with me. And I said, I'm turning it on, and you look at it first. 
And she said, there's nothing but, like, obviously, there's nothing but good stuff, you okay. know. And, and everywhere through, the, the, you know, through every little channel you could get to me, through LinkedIn, through Facebook, through, you know, Twitter, through DM, there were just deluges of, you know, long, not short messages, you know, not, you're great, I heard you, and there was, this is my story, this is what happened to me, wow. um, including from men mm-hmm. and, and people in heterosexual and homosexual relationships. And, and I was diligently reading every one of them I just felt I had to respond to every one of them it took me about four weeks to respond but and they would come in every day there was one woman every single night on Facebook she'd message me she was in the toilet he was outside the door I was trying to get her to go to woman's aid and she she wouldn't call woman's aid she'll have to delete your message now and I'll talk to you tomorrow night and please God I'll still be here so I did a TED talk there um just at the beginning of the year and it was all that I hoped that I would have done on the late late I obsessed about doing that TED talk properly I had stickers all over my uh, bathroom but you wrote that so I you wrote were in it control. it's the it, perfect yeah. 12 okay. minutes which encapsulates for me um, the phases you go through if you're mm. in a domestic violent relationship and also I think how you get out of it okay. so which is you know not how do you why did you stay but how did you leave how do you get that you know moment of courage to say enough it's enough. easy to find if people google you and yeah Ted. it's Ted Talk yeah, 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 yeah on yeah. my YouTube f- channel right, and it, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, okay. so, so via your website so they can the, easily to find Te- I like Ted and that's two ways I've bracketed two pieces of my life with Ted Talks um, because it gives you that you know control and and the editing like you know the famous story if I had a longer time I'd write a shorter letter the longer you <laughs> the longer you spend you know doing something the the more concise and powerful yes. your words can be so you know obviously I felt on the Late Late Show people got the message but I don't feel I really gave anything back and and I was obsessed with this idea that there was all these words that were jumbled up in my head and I needed to get them in the mm-hmm. right order to say what it is I could pass on you know if I started off this journey to say I'll pass this on as testimony what was my testimony it's not going to be blubbering on the late late show it's going to be something which is more about this is what I know now but that blubbering on the late late show was a vital introduction and a vital step on the path that you were taking yeah. To get to Ted. You you couldn't yeah. have got there. Oh no, I couldn't have got there. Yeah, and yeah. I and I do think that there's two, you know, in all of the world of of fake news and, you know, people talking about digital media and um there's two very powerful ways in which social media and mainstream media have worked together with me. Um, to magnify my voice because subsequently I fundraised for Women's Aid and we started a campaign there on Valentine's Day called Two Into You for young people which is always what my belief is you know Women's Aid often gets people who have children and they're fleeing for their life if they caught me at the moment when my head got bashed against the car and I realised that if he's hitting you once he's never going to stop I like to think I would have made different decisions so this young person's campaign was you know done in a shoestring basically I think we raised 30,000 that was all we had and um we, I happened to be speaking at various things around that time and I asked all of my colleagues would you please tweet it out put it out on LinkedIn so you know the amount of calls the mm, amount of time that mm. people spend on that website young people in particular so that's a really positive way that digital can actually help magnify a, or put a lens or magnify your voice in, in these really important areas mm. you know Are you a fan of modern social digital media um, um, there are pros and cons to it there are look twitter i've always been a fan of and i know people fall in and out of love with twitter and i certainly get trolled significantly but you know your right to troll my right to block so i kind of don't stress too much about it i'd say um 
Twitter I loved the immediacy of the news aspect of it I only fell in love with Instagram really about a year ago which is really photographic and I love obviously um, love nice food <laughs> one of the big parts of my life was food and wine magazine and I do travel writing for a living so obviously you know beautiful travel photography is part of my life I'm sponsored by Canon so I take my cameras everywhere I go and and Instagram what I love about Instagram is that it's not about news it's just about beautiful photos mm. and sometimes being you know the juxtaposition of something versus another you know people kind of like that um, not a massive fan of Facebook I will admit I have a public profile on Facebook and I have a little private one which is tiny just I keep it as tiny as mm. possible because what I found with Facebook is before I knew it there was thousands of people connected and I don't know who they were from Adam and then I said okay go public so get rid of all the friends yeah, thing yeah. and um, and really if I just want to connect with my cousins you know that's the, the one thing that I'll do Are you worried about the whole um what they know about you and what they've because been using I don't that information use it. for. I, my, so but I Google use, have that yeah. information. Twitter, they all well, have that now, information. So I obsess about privacy yeah. settings. So um, I I would I only did it just I went through them all against the snuck any in in case I didn't see them and you know no Apps tracking you're, and all, all right, yeah. okay, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and location, I hate people knowing my location okay. and things like that. I tell you what, the one thing I will admit to is I'm a, a total news junkie. Um, to the point where I need to go and um, almost need addiction counselling because when I grew up my father would watch the news at six o'clock bong bong the whole house would be silent everybody watched the news and then it would be turned off until the next news that went on and he'd read the paper and it was all done in that way and if I wanted to know the news from London I'd call my mother and say who's died what's happened now I obsess about the news. I get up at six every morning. Before I do anything, I flicked into the Independent, the Journal, the Examiner, the Irish Times. Then I'm on to the Economist. Then I look at the Spectator. Have I you subscriptions to no, a lot of these? No, nothing. I don't pay a subscription to anything. So I have to keep constantly clearing my. Don't tell anybody that. Clearing my history, browser history. <laughs> I think the, you might be telling the Irish today, Times right? every now and again says you've reached your limit. Yeah, yeah. Hang on a second. <laughs> Delete the browser history. Close the app. Open it again. Um, the Atlantic, the Slate. Um, then I do Portico, Politico and then Wall Street Journal the Financial Times I think often has gems in there very annoying that I can't read the whole lot so I go through all sorts of stealth to see it The Guardian observe the same thing uh, BBC every morning I'll read the BBC um, so I go through this ritual in the morning before ever I even get out of bed How long does that take you? It's 30 minutes Okay and then I'm, if I see anything interesting I'll put up usually on LinkedIn I'm a big LinkedIn poster right. and uh, and then an hour later I will be back on again to see did I miss anything I mean I, I don't know if something in the world happened why it should bother me that I don't know about it immediately but throughout the entire day I will get into my car I'll check those apps I'll have a quick look I'll flick through I have them all open now in my browser so I can just click through and see anything happened if there's a developing story wow. obviously I have to okay. watch it I am totally did if I wake up at three o'clock which is virtually absolutely hello three o'clock <laughs> I meet you again yeah. almost every night <laughs> reach my phone did anything happen that I need to know about and and once I've finished if I have any extra time I actually then go on Twitter to see the live Twitter feed is there anything that the live Twitter feed has picked up I scan headlines Mm. don't ask me to go deeper because I only want to know about the earthquake and what's happened in Singapore and there's some terrible fire that went on so in Russia so do you read many articles or are you, or are you just seeing no headlines? I don't no. I tend to so news I tend to 
headline, 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 unless one is particularly interesting. Mm. But research, I read mountains of okay. all day, every day. But so, they're there for specific projects that yeah. you would be working on? No, 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 just because I'm interested. Okay. Like if you see my LinkedIn, almost every day I post things that I think are interesting right. on LinkedIn. Okay. But, but then if I see fire, earthquake, landslide, you know, oh, I, yeah. I don't really want to know the details because I don't want to have the capacity to to completely you know if it's a big story of course I read all of the details but and sometimes I find myself it's a very big story I'll read what did the New York Times say what did the Washington Post say what did the Atlantic say you know do you I, buy I, newspapers do you watch no. do, do you watch the news on television no read listen to the news on radio no no can't so remember all the last online one. all online I've never I haven't watched the news on TV in let's say at least two years oh wow um, I haven't bought a newspaper for years and I don't Radio is sporadic for me. I, when I'm in the car, I sometimes need peace and quiet, so I turn everything off and I just want my quiet time. Um, the opposite to my son, who gets in and puts on the music yeah, blaring, yeah, but yeah. I like actually just silence sometimes just to kind of process things. But yeah, I am seriously addicted to news and I really do need to do something about it. You think it's a problem? It's a total problem. I worry about it all the time. Like, I mean, we're sitting here talking. When you go, I'll be flicking open that phone to see what did I miss. Mm. You're at a, you're at a stage now where you know you've been there, done that, wore the t-shirt. Mm. But you're you're not stopping. Oh no. Media wise, what are your plans? now from now so I sold the company on the 1st of December or no, I didn't sell, sell Harmony I still have it I have Woman's Way and Planet Woman which is my life and I sold Tatler and Food and Wine and all of those to another company an American company Irish Studio and I'm Chairwoman Emeritus nice posh word Emeritus means honorary kind of, on, yeah yeah so just an ambassador yeah. really for that company and then um, and then I did something crazy I did Dancing with the Stars which was really a way of me coming to terms with selling my babies that's the best way I can put it so I, I really struggled to make the decision to sell the business I had made the decision mid-year after doing the late late it just I tell you it was like okay sort your life out stop sitting on top was of it a six. rational decision or an emotional one do you think no rational it was yeah. it was like this you know not full stop but the you know what people say end of the beginning you know it, it was just like that moment where I said you know what you really need to get your shit together you know, I went home and consciously made a decision I was going to sell the business. That was the person who eventually got it. Wasn't the only people I was talking to. And um, and six months when you're in the thick of selling, obviously you end up doing legal stuff and you're, you're no longer thinking, oh my goodness, I'm selling my babies. But it's coming towards the end of the process of I'm going to wake up in the morning. I'm not going to have my babies. It's all going to be owned by somebody else. Is that else. What, what you thought of your magazines <laughs> oh, as yeah. your babies? Anybody who says that to me, it doesn't matter what I own since, you know, it's what's the happiest day of your life. And I always say, well, I have to say politically correct thing to do is Marion Richard, <laughs> followed by my child. But the day I bought that business, oh my goodness, I was like 50 feet up in the air. I never thought in my lifetime living in, you know, the house I grew up in, going to that Dutch yeah. school in St. Hope Street, which I still go to all the time. The chances of somebody like me owning that business were slim to none and um, and I did it if that buying that business was the happiest moment yes. of your life then selling it must have been a real wrench it was and it and and it was because you know that business was was increasingly not mine it was mine to start with it was Richard and mine and you know New Year's Eve over a bottle of wine we had our plans our excitement our mm. ambitions what we were going to do when he was removed it took me a long time to realize that actually it was no longer my future and 
and letting go of it was a big wrench. I remember still the day I, well, the day it was announced to all the media that it was sold and people were texting me saying, are you out having a bottle of champagne? What are you doing? I was sitting in the hall outside of the door here. There's a beautiful portrait to Richard and I sat on the floor with a cup of tea and said I should have done that years ago. And um, they'd given me the call maybe three or four weeks beforehand and said, would you ever think of doing Dancing with the Stars? I was on crutches, by the way, from a kneecap replacement. And I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. don't even know why. It was a Completely it, because it was outside of your comfort yeah, zone? Yeah, I knew I needed something and I wanted to just get out mm. of this space for a bit, you yeah. know, the media yeah. space. And um, so, you know, I have to say that it was a gift because... I immediately, in advance of the 1st of December, we started rehearsals and then the whole of December was eight hours a day except for Monday. And I was enveloped in this new world where my body was aching. I cannot tell you the pain. I crawled up those stairs every night. There's still a big tub of Epsom salts next to my bath and I could hardly even get into the bath. I was in such pain. And that poor child, Curtis, my pro, pro dancer, didn't get an Olympian or a, a nice sporty 21 year old. He got this L one that's been you know, scrunched over a computer all his life. So he would spend four hours every day, literally throwing my shoulders back, stretching, pulling my arms oh, wow. every which way, yeah, pulling yeah. my legs, yeah, making yeah. my heel touch my bum. My poor surgeon kept having to drain fluid off my kneecap. But the upshot was, although I was in massive pain in December and stripped back into something I didn't know anything about, my head was so full of that. I had no room to be, you know, maudlin about the business. I was so excited about and terrified of the first dance. Mm. When we hit New Year and everybody's, oh, I ate too much and everything. You know, I was a stone down. I was feeling fantastic. I was an inch taller. I, the energy levels started to go up once the pain mm. started to go down. And um, I loved it. Like, it was fantastic. And the dancing was incredible. And it was emotional. And it was like discovering a new form of expression loved every second of it was I disappointed to be thrown out first not hugely if it was a business program now I'd be <laughs> shoving everyone out of the way it was yeah. to be Beverly on just the right time I had okay. my two months yeah. and okay. my brother was going are you half crazy do you know what's waiting for you back here like you know yeah. when I realized what I had to do when I came out and I set up a dance business with Curtis and his partner Emily so and are you doing any media stuff so I'm I'm kind of so are you have you le have you left the media? no I haven't no 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 so so for one thing the the real nuts and bolts of selling the business of disassociating the business um, happened in the last few weeks mm. last week they moved out of the building that I'm in I'm selling Rosemont which is the building that I bought spectacularly badly yeah. in 2007 I'm selling the London house which was Richard and Ard's first house I'm decluttering my life so I've had the busiest like last four to six weeks I went straight back into current affairs um, stuff in um, well literally a week after um, being tanned and sparkly and wearing you know, nice frocks and spangly earrings so I'm sitting there talking about Brexit you know where was so, that? on Ivan Yates oh, and yeah, okay. Matt which I've done about as a, as five or six times as a guest, as a yeah. guest yeah. so uh, so for me I I took on a few things as you know you would say weirdly an interim measure domestic violence is yeah. a big part of my life Started working on a documentary for that. Hasn't seen the light of day, but we've done an awful lot of okay. work with one of the production companies. That'll arrive where, when? Do we know yet? Or can you talk I, about it? I can't, but we're in the middle of it. Okay. Right? And then... Watch that space. Watch that space. Then the second thing um, I took on some time ago was helping to fundraise for the Pope's visit, which um, may seem odd, but obviously I don't think it's odd. I think it's something that I do feel comfortable doing. It's a big experimental event in Ireland. 
I saw the first one in the Phoenix Park. My dad did a bit of security. Um, I was at the one in Limerick. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, these events happen usually once in a lifetime. And, you know, I, I'm really comfortable doing what I'm doing for that event. Are people surprised you're doing it? What kind of reaction are you getting when people find out? Um, so... <laughs> I'm talking about on social media, I suppose, particularly. Well, no, in amongst my friendship circles, I've had a lot of critical reaction too. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. And, and a lot of people who probably don't know that I'm, you know, whatever flawed, bad version of a Catholic mm. I am, which I am, by the way. Um, you know, you can't take the Catholic out of me no more than you can take the Irish out of me. Like, mm. I'm still going to pray to St. Anthony and bless myself when a coffin goes by and oh, really? find myself, okay. you know, lighting candles yeah, for dead yeah. people. Like, it's just me. But this is a media podcast. Tell me about the media reaction you've got not, from people so, uh, so who not, find out you're fundraising for the Pope's visit. On Twitter particularly, I suppose. And, and no, Twitter, is, to be honest with you, I did. The first time that I was really put on the, the stand on it was on the Claire Byrne show. I think up till then, people, had, it was just kind of eked out a little bit. And people go, where do you square that with your views mm. on women's equality? I was like, fine. Do you think the Pope will be visiting the tomb baby sign? I said, I hope he does. So You got that reaction on, yeah, on social media. And, and also, I'm an ambassador for the Magdalene Survivors reunion. So people are just totally confused with me. And I'm like, but why would you think that that was any other way? These yeah. women, of course, I'm going to go out of my way to make sure they can come together, you know? So the stand on Claire Byrne was okay as in I got lots of people saying Jesus if you're a Catholic I'm a Catholic too um, but I have a feeling that the cutting edge um, which has been broadcast tonight um, is going to be different because I detected it wasn't a conversation we're having a conversation yeah. um, but it wasn't a conversation and I think it's very hard if you say what I've just said is you know I, I think this Pope is good and I don't think he goes far enough on occasions. and But however, he's coming to Ireland. 1.3 billion people are going to be watching this country. It's a global event. It's bringing 30, 35,000 people in. It's going to showcase all the wonderful talents that we have here in all sorts of different ways. So it's a big experiential event. And it's something that I think the whole country will want to be part of, for the whole world to be watching us. Let's see if there's the same Twitter reaction to this podcast when it goes out next week as there will be to cutting edge uh, tonight Nora Casey thanks a million for that that was uh, fascinating and I hope you enjoyed it too it was war and peace <laughs> less crime and punishment <laughs> thanks a million thank you So thanks again to Nora Casey for being so honest, open and frank with me during our off-message chat. If you want to listen to previous episodes, they're all available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts and MyCloud. Take your pick. You can sign up to get future off-message blog posts and podcasts ahead of the pack by filling out the subscription form on any individual off-message post page over at patomahony.ie. And, of course, you can follow and like Off Message on Twitter and Facebook at Off Message One. All shares and shout-outs greatly appreciated. Till the next time, I'm Pat O'Mahony, this is Off Message, and thanks for listening. <laughs>